0: Thank you for listening to The Actors Room. Please subscribe to the show in iTunes and leave comments and reviews. The show is also on Facebook, Twitter, Google Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. The website for the show is theactorsroom.libson.com. The site gives you access to all past episodes. Enjoy the show.
1: If we do nothing, we might wake up someday and find out there was another person blown up, another person killed. Um, If that were to happen, we'd have to go through the rest of our lives with the blood of innocent people on our hands. I mean, that's unthinkable. And then, of course, there's Ted, there's me, there's our relationship. But more than that, there's our mother, who's worried about Ted for years and realizing this could cause her to have a heart attack, a stroke, her happiness would end, she might never sleep well again. As much as we tried to think about that, there was no way out. Right. Ultimately, we thought, well, we, we were the only people who could stop the violence. Right. We're the only people, if Ted is the Unabomber, we're the only people who know him well enough to stop him. We were morally obliged to do that. Right. And um, certainly don't regret that decision. When Ted was arrested, they found under his bed where he slept um, another live bomb in a package, apparently ready to be mailed to someone. Right. I'm quite sure if we hadn't come forward, others would have have perished.
0: Episode number 24 in the episode title, The Unabomber. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of The Actors' Room. And we're going to talk about uh, a program that I watched just about a week ago. Uh, I was at Christmas dinner with the family this Christmas, and my stepbrother, Matt, He gave a little suggestion on a show that he was watching with his uh, wife called Manhunt the Unabomber, and it was a miniseries, about maybe six episodes, and he recommended it. He said, you got to watch it. It's really interesting, and I said, yeah, I don't know that much about the Unabomber, quite honestly. I know a little bit more about McVeigh, uh, who did the Oklahoma City bombings, but the Unabomber, I was like, you know, I know he went to Harvard and things like that, real smart guy, and He said, watch it, you'll love it. So it was the middle of the day, about a week ago. And because we're on Christmas break last week, I decided to go ahead, give it a try, put it on. And like I said, it was the middle of the day, like around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I sat and watched about 3, back to back to back. I didn't get up. I didn't flinch. And I was very impressed with the way they went about portraying Kaczynski and how they caught him. He was very hard to catch. The whole story is great. And that is why we're going to dedicate this episode of The Actors Room to Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Because of the fact that I watched Manhunt about a week ago and thought to myself, why the hell not? Let's do something true crime related. I wanted to do it for a while now, and I thought, why not do it now? New Year, something different. And like you heard in the beginning, I changed the music I thought that maybe I could do that from time to time. I kind of like the beginning music that I had in the, in the first 23 episodes. I thought it was really nice. It sort of just sounds like a movie opening or something like that. And I thought it's just perfect for the show. And I still love it. And I probably will continue to use that. But with this edition of the Actors Room, it's different because we're not talking about actors or films. Although we are talking about a show that I watched. Manhunt, The Unabomber, this one is different because of the fact that I'm not talking about an actor what did you think of that opening music um, some of you are probably thinking to yourself I've heard that before it kinda sounds familiar while well, most of you are saying to yourself no I've never heard that before in my life well those of you who are our big back to the future fans like me as I stated in the past love it I've seen it at least two hundred times and I was doing my research on the Unabomber thinking I need a new opening, something different to grab the audience saying, oh, wow, something different, oh. And I kept listening to stuff, nothing, nothing. I mean, I spent two, three days looking up openings for podcasts, just different music, nothing stuck, nothing sounded right, and I must have listened to hundreds of stuff. I mind you, they're only a minute long, if that. Sometimes they're about 20, 30 seconds. But anyways, I'm watching Back to the Future. Like on what's today for me, it's Friday. It must have been Tuesday. Yeah, I think it was Tuesday. I put in Back to the Future again. <laughs> just like... I can't get sick of that one. I could probably watch it tonight. And still enjoy it just as much. Anyways. The part in the film where Marty McFly... Is... Nets Michael J. Fox's character. Is lying in bed sleeping. He's out. Well, the phone rings at about 1230 at night. It's Doc Brown. Marty fell asleep... And Doc needs him to pick up something on his way over to Twin Pines Mall where he's going to show him the time machine. Well, when he's lying in bed, sleeping, there is a song playing on the radio. Well, that is that song. I grew up, I bought the soundtrack to that movie, and of course have heard that song in full years ago when I was a kid. Because I used to love listening to that soundtrack. And that song. It's stuck in my head because I I listened to it the next day. I listened to all the songs the next day on the soundtrack because I'm like, it's such a great soundtrack. I got to hear all the songs. I got to that song. It's stuck in my head. And I told my wife yesterday, I can't get this damn song out of my head. And it's really hard to understand the lyrics. It's a song called Time Bomb Town. And if you go ahead and look up the lyrics of that song, this Time Bomb Town, the song I played in the beginning... The lyrics are very similar to when happened with uh, Ted Kaczynski. The lyrics, if you look them up, because they're hard to understand when he's singing them, he kind of has this little hiccup thing he's doing with the lyrics. Different. I like the song. It's catchy. And it's still in my head today. So a little explanation on the song in the beginning there. And how I'm going to talk about Ted Kaczynski. After the song was played, there was a clip about Ted. Uh, His brother, David, was talking just then. And David feels very bad about what happened. Now, he is the one that turned him in. His wife read this essay that Ted had written and told the FBI to place it in a newspaper, get it out there publicly, or he was going to continue killing people. Well, they decided, the FBI decided, to let this letter, essay, or what they call a manifesto come out. And David's wife read it, first page, was convinced that it was her brother-in-law, Ted. She never even met him, but she had read all of the letters that Ted had sent his brother David throughout the years. And they were usually pretty lengthy because Ted was really against government, he was against technology, and just the way of life, the way the way of life was going, where it was heading. And he would kind of spill his guts out to his brother in letters. And David kept them all. All the letters that Ted had sent him, he kept. So when his wife, this is David's wife, told him, Listen, I got a weird feeling that your brother is the Unabomber. And I'm scared to tell you this because this is just, it's crazy. And David is thinking to himself, there's no way. I mean, Ted's strange. Don't get me wrong. He's a weird guy. But he would never harm anyone. So when he sat down and read this manifesto, he was 100% sure that it wasn't Ted. But he wanted to humor his wife and read it. He read it and thought to himself, It's Ted. What are we going to do? So he had a decision to make. Him and his wife kind of battled over it for a while. I mean, think about this decision. Your brother is doing something so unfathomable. Killing people, you have to stop it. I mean, he's your brother, so it's that uh, you know, what am I doing to my brother? Am I doing the right thing? I mean, he's sick, obviously, he needs to be caught. So, it was a really rough decision for him. And how he explained in the opening clip how it affected his mother, uh, the fact that it would probably just kill her, that her son was the Unabomber. And we're going to get into Ted's childhood, his schooling, and everything else that's going to lead up to him being the Unabomber. Now, Ted's brother David would go on to fully support all of Ted's victims in the past. And I believe he actually called them up, all of them, on the phone and apologized and said, I'm so sorry for you and your family and everything that you've had to deal with by the hands of my brother. Me and my family are truly sorry. I hope you accept our apologies. And most of them were very receptive to that. Uh, Especially one of the very uh, last victims that Ted had. I believe it was victim number 12. Gary Wright. And that incident was the incident where he was uh, looked at for the first and I believe only time. And that's where you get that sketch drawing of Ted with the hood and the sunglasses and everything is is when this Gary Wright was hurt. Now, he didn't kill him. And when David called him up and said sorry, Gary said, you know, he was very receptive and said thank you. And they actually became very close friends. And I've heard interviews with these guys. Like, they're giving an interview with the show. And both David and this Gary guy are on the interview together. And the way they talk to one another, you could you could tell they're... Very good friends. It's not. I think Gary actually said at one point that they were best friends. So it goes to show you how Ted's brother David really got involved with all the victims because he felt so bad about it and really wanted to let them know that the family uh, were not like Ted. Ted was just sick, and I hope you accept our apology. So a little insight into David. Uh, first, about his decision to rat on his brother, and second, by following through. And going ahead and reaching out to all the victims. I think David Kaczynski. Feels a little responsible. For the destruction that took place at the hands of his brother Ted. His brother was a troubled person and he knew that. But he never felt that he would become dangerous. But David feels that he may have prevented it. In some way. And maybe he feels also. That he contributed to his downfall, and I say that because you know I have a brother as well, and if I felt that he was really struggling in a certain area and didn't do what I thought necessary to help him, I would sort of feel responsible because we're close. My brother and I are, are close, always have been, and I feel that Ted and his brother David were also that close. Uh, they were um, they grew up together. Uh, really getting along very well, and they're both very bright. And uh, also, the fact that David and Ted would go hunting together, they would talk philosophy together, just like brothers closely would do. So, Ted becoming this violent, I think David thought to himself, I really didn't do enough. And feels almost directly responsible for what Ted did. I don't know if, that's, if he should be blaming himself in that way. It's not for me to say. I'm not in that position. And I don't know what other people would say about that as well. I mean, it, it, maybe he didn't. Maybe there were warning signs that they maybe didn't take too seriously. Oh, Ted's just kooky. He's, he would never hurt anyone. So maybe deep down they felt they could have done something more. I have to thank my stepbrother Matt once again for offering up the advice to watch Manhunt, the Unabomber, over Christmas, and it was truly fun. I finished it within two days. That's how good it was. That's rare for me. It usually takes me a week or two, if something like that, but it took me only two days to finish it up, and I was done. I was very impressed in the show with the performance of actor Sam Worthington. Damn it. I'm watching this guy, and I'm going, okay, I've seen him before. He looks so familiar, but I can't grasp how I know him, right? So I looked him up on IMDb, and I found out that he was, oh, just only in one of the biggest movies of all time, Avatar. Now, mind you, I've only seen that movie once, and it was when it came out. I didn't really fall in love with that one. I just didn't. A lot of people loved it. It did so well at the box office. Cameron, the director, you know he did a fabulous job. It's a good movie, but I just it was so long ago, and I also found out what else did he do? There was something else that he did. Um, oh yeah, Hexal Ridge is something I also want to see, and with um, the the um, military movie, the war movie, I want to see that pretty bad. And I think I saw it on Amazon the other day, so I'm gonna have to check that out real quick. Sam Worthington, very impressive in his role. And this is the first project that I've ever seen him do. And I was very impressed with him. He kind of reminds me of James Dean a little bit. He, the way he kind of takes in the scene, uh, he grabs at things around him. Like if there's a chair nearby, he'll grab it. And the way he just, he like clutches it. Or, and then, like he'll let go and just sort of cradle things. You can tell he's really involved in what's going on around him. Soaking up everything. And he delves into this character. This uh, fits. He's called and now his character is the one that found a way, a new technique in the FBI to profile the Unabomber in order to really narrow their search because they were all over the place. Ted was not giving them much. And this new profiler, Fitz, came in and had a new idea. He said, well, what is he giving us? What is Ted giving us? And they said, well, you know, he's given us letters. And he says, well, give me the letters. Let me study them. Let me get a team together. We'll, we'll try to figure out if we can find some clues within his writing, his language. So I said, fine, go ahead. Look at the letters. And they did. And I got to tell you, it's a new way of profiling language. They were able to break it down and find out. And I think this Fitz guy figured out that he was a white male. He figured out where he was living in the United States, uh, where he probably went to college, and he broke down pretty much like when he started and when he ended just by his language. And then when Ted went ahead and put out that manifesto and it was published in the Washington Post, that manifesto is like a thesis paper. So you know this guy was very intelligent. And if you read this manifesto, it's out there to read. You go online, you can find it. I read it. Oh my god. It's hard to follow because it's a thesis. This manifesto. And you could tell Ted was very passionate about a lot of things in society. And the number one thing that he was pissed about was technology and how it's breaking down our values. And I want to go ahead and quote for you something from that manifesto that grabbed me. And here it goes. Now here I am quoting the manifesto quote we divide human drives into three groups number one those drives they can be satisfied with minimal effort number two those they can be satisfied by only at the cost of serious effort number three those that cannot be adequately satisfied no matter how much effort one makes the power process is the process of satisfying the drives of the second group. Continue. The more drives there are in the third group, the more there is frustration, anger, eventually defeatism, depression, etc. So certain artificial needs have been created that fall into group two, hence serve the need for the power process. Advertising and marketing techniques have been developed that make many people feel they need things that their grandparents never desired or even dreamed of. It requires serious effort to earn enough money to satisfy these artificial needs. Hence, they fall into group two. Now he also puts in here, in parentheses, but see paragraphs 80 to 82, which we don't have. And now he continues. Modern man must satisfy his need for the power process largely through pursuit of the artificial needs created by the advertising and marketing industry and through surrogate activities. And that's the end of that section of his manifesto. I find that fascinating if you understand what he's talking about here. I find this section of his manifesto to be quite accurate. In today's society, of course. Now the manifesto itself is hard to read. Because it reads like a thesis paper, like I said. But Ted was a genius and intended Harvard. So he knew what he was writing. And I want to get back to the point of that section of his manifesto. And how he says technology is going to pretty much make us spend money on things. We really shouldn't have to spend money on. Eh, I see his point there. But the, the moreover, I get where he's coming from with society sort of, I don't know, leading us astray in ways of society, where everybody's on their phone all the time, looking down. They're eating dinner with their family, and some are looking down on their phone. Technology is sucking us in. We can't help it. I mean, it's just so available. Everything's so readily available. You can't help looking at your phone every five minutes. So you don't miss anything. But that's where we have gone. And I think that Ted also saw. And he. I, I want to go ahead and give you an example. Of something that he pointed out. Is that when the car. Became invented. Or became popular. Back in the day. You know people survived without them in the past. But because of the invention of the car. They are now a part of our lives. Now some people will go ahead and be rogues. And I have a cousin, a second cousin, that I don't even think he owns a car. He rides a bike everywhere. But you know something? He's also very smart. So I guarantee you that where he works is pretty close to where he lives. And I also guarantee you that his his house is also very close to the supermarkets and all the little shops that he has to go to. Because I am positive he's not riding his bike 10, 15 miles. (laughs) So... And I hope his wife has a car, so if they go have to go ahead and go to the city or something, they hop in her car. But he's dead set about not driving around. And when he has to go someplace, he takes his bicycle. But these days, what ninety nine point eight percent of us have cars. We need our cars to get from here to there. You want to hop on your bike and drive? You know, drive. Sorry. You want to hop on your bike, your you know your bicycle. And go to work every day? What if you work in like three cities over and it takes you like a half an hour to get there by car? It would take you, what, three, four hours to get there by bike? You'd have to wake up at two o'clock in the morning. But this is what he's talking about, Ted, is that technology reshapes us and reshapes our values, reshapes society. And I think he saw that even back when he was growing up, and we're going to get into his childhood soon, so we kind of were able to... Uh, see what I'm talking about as as far as time frame is concerned but even then in the 60s and 70s he saw this I think moving into where it is today and where it may lead in the future the whole manifesto is about other topics as well like leftism and culture but his main focus was disrupting any faction that coveted technology because this is where his bombs would be placed universities in airports computer stores also he generated fear and when the time came for him to present his essay he told the FBI that if his words were not published he would continue sending out bombs so the FBI decided to publish his work in the Washington Post and hence the manifesto the decision to send out this was very controversial at the time the FBI should not give in to terrorists But it was a smart move. It was hoped that someone out there would recognize something in the essay and give them a name. And it did. Like I said earlier, David Kaczynski's wife was overseas on vacation and happened to read the manifesto on the internet, actually. And was convinced that it was her brother, her brother-in-law. And she was convinced that he was the Unabomber. The young life of Ted Kaczynski is vital in understanding this troubled soul. He was born on May 22, 1942, in Chicago, Illinois. His mother's name was Wanda, and his dad's name was Theodore. They were hard-working Polish-Americans. Now there is a story about Ted when he was a baby that may begin to explain his progressions into the man he grew to be. As a baby, he got very sick. With an allergic reaction. And I think he got hives. Really bad hives. And it put him in the hospital. For a while. I believe a month or two. And back then when kids got sick. Now he was a baby at this time. And when the babies got sick. The parents really weren't allowed to visit them very often. And when they brought Ted home. When he got better. His mother thought that he just wasn't the same after that. He went into the hospital. A very attentive. Happy little baby. And when she brought him home. She felt he was very distant and wasn't as happy as he was before. And when you uh, think about this, uh, I've done some research on this, and it looks like when they're when you're a baby, I think that's a, a very critical stage, um, connecting with human beings. And I think mothers find that, Uh, their mother instinct, their motherly instinct really does want to hold the baby a lot because you're making a connection there and I think that was a very valuable time in Ted's life as a baby when he was taken away and put into the hospital he wasn't getting the love from his mother that he required and I think that affected him and the mom saw it too is this the start maybe of his mental sickness? what do you think? I say yes. Something happened here. Ted was inverted, yes. He didn't play with kids around the neighborhood, and he would rather stay in his room and read. His brother, David, was confused why Ted didn't play like the other kids. And David actually asked his parents, what was wrong with Ted? What's wrong with my brother? It was said that Ted was special. Ted was displaying signs of a high intelligence at an early age, And felt it difficult to relate to other young people. He was too advanced. And assured David that Ted would be fine. Once he got into high school and college. So being a kid. He found it really hard to identify with these other kids. Because his brain was on another level. He'd rather sit and read than play. I think. Which is, I mean some kids are like that. Most kids like to play. But Ted didn't. He was another plane this guy he'd rather do math than play with the ball outside Ted parents saw that he was special and his mind was special as well and uh, very early in his life they had him tested his IQ to see how smart he really was now a genius will score anywhere around the level of 140 Ted scored over 160 quite simply he was off the charts gifted with a sharp mind Ted's mother was concerned. Her son seemed lost in how to deal with other people. His communication skills were inept, and she prayed that school would straighten him out. But due to the fact that Ted was so smart, he found himself skipping grades. And being a few years younger than the rest of the class affected him. And I think that at one point in his life, he was actually loosening up, getting along with the kids, his own age, and becoming a leader... And because he was so smart, the, the uh, teachers felt it better for him intellectually to skip a grade or two. He did and then fell right back into being uh, a shell. And he got bullied and so on because he was smaller and he was younger. Uh, that affected Ted a lot because I think he had a chance to really grab on and grow socially. And with him being so smart, it wrecked it. So it's like a catch-22 What do you do with this kid? Would it have been better just to leave him where he's at? But sometimes kids, they get bored. They need to be challenged. So I felt that everyone around Ted felt it best in his interest to move ahead, skip a grade. um, Because it's going to help you down the road. Well, it might not have. It actually might have been the wrong choice at that time. Neighbors of Ted claimed that he was, quote, strictly a loner, didn't play, and an old man before his time, end quote. Math was his diversion. Ted graduated from high school at the age of 15 and got a scholarship to study at Harvard. Not too bad. Classmates at Harvard said that Ted was extremely reserved. He walked through the dorm, straight to his room, and slammed the door. He struggled to talk with his peers, so he put all of his energy into his work. Ted would later state, that this was what got him through school, the fact that he dived into math. He could find peace and accomplishment in mathematics. He was challenged academically at Harvard, and that he appreciated. Now we come to a part of his life that must be addressed and discussed on a very high level. Ted was involved in psychological experiments at Harvard University. Yes, you heard me right. Educators at this prestigious Ivy League school were using brilliant-minded students as lab rats to conduct experiments. And Ted Kaczynski was one of those students. There was a process that Ted was involved in to make sure that he was suitable to participate. I think the kids had to fill out like questionnaires. And Ted did. And it narrowed all the students down. Who uh, they felt would have been best for these experiments. Well, Ted made it to the final cut. And he was sort of flattered at the fact that they picked him. I think that when you're picked to do anything, you feel that you're special. You know, when you're kind of weeded down. Like, you have a group of people. Like, say you have a classroom full of 50 people. And they're looking for, like, three people. And they keep narrowing it down. Like, they narrow it down to 20. Then 10. Then 5. Then 5. And then they're like, okay, you're the top three. We're going to use you for this very special experiment. So Ted uh, sort of was going into it very positive. Now I guess Ted's parents had to sign off on this being done. And the mother claims that she was in favor of having Ted do this because she felt it would help him socially. And just to point this out, and I don't know this for sure, I'm guessing, but I don't think his mom knew exactly what they were doing. I bet you Harvard University sent over a form, a consent form for her to sign, probably telling very generally what they were going to do to Ted. Like, okay, we're going to be doing this behavioral, social experiment. And is it okay if Ted joins this group? And she probably felt, yeah, I mean, it's Harvard University, right? They're not going to hurt my kid. Nay, nay, Uh, I wouldn't trust anybody. But she didn't know. I'm going to say that. I don't see her signing off on anything if she knew what they were going to do to him. And I'm going to get to that right now. The professor that ran this little experiment was Henry Murray. I guess Murray was involved in top secret experiments he conducted on Vietnam soldiers. What the fuck? Okay, but anyways... Ted went into these sessions with great interest. The professor had Ted write an essay about all of his opinions on life, society, and the like. And he also had to include personal details about his life as well. He was encouraged, now I'm talking about Ted. Ted was encouraged to be open and reveal deep secrets about his true self. He was told if he revealed more, he would get more out of the experiment. Ted's essay was then given to an associate of the study to be looked at. Ted would sit down in a chair and then be hooked up to electrodes to monitor his reactions. The session would occur with associates yelling and screaming at Ted about his essay. Nothing but negative feedback was expressed at all the subjects that Ted loved. So I guess these sessions were also filmed as well. And then when they were done yelling and screaming at him, they would then project it onto the film wall and show him exactly what they did to him. Him crying. Him getting abused by these motherfuckers. Now, I understand that Ted Kaczynski signed up for it and said, okay, I will do this, but I don't think Ted knew what they were going to fucking do to him. And for some reason... He kept doing these experiments for over three years. He kept in, he got yelled at five days a week for three years. Now you're telling me that doesn't do damage to a person? I guarantee you, from my personal opinion, it fucked him up. It had to have fucked him up. They were doing MK Ultra shit, okay? And when Ted got caught years later, everything, all this. These experiments, all the study stuff they did at Harvard Everything was uh, closed off All the files, destroyed Hmm, interesting Why was that? They didn't want to get in trouble Because they might be directly responsible For fucking this kid up Now I understand he probably had some mental issues up there And he probably did, weird kid But this didn't help, I guarantee it Excuse me for my ranting right there It just makes me upset And I just think about How Ted was abused. How any kid, and I'm sure he wasn't the only one. Okay. There were a couple other students that had the same thing going on. He wasn't the only one. But there are kids out there getting abused. Not only physically, but mentally, socially. You're hurting them. Why? To get some further knowledge about something that is probably freaking pointless. You know, they thought it wasn't pointless. But it probably is. It's just people fucking with people. Fucking with their minds. How dare you? Ted at this age, he was 16 at this time. Vulnerable. I mean, he was always also just so vulnerable already. He just wanted friends. And he's doing these experiments that are just messing him up even more. Now, Ted eventually earned a bachelor's degree in math at Harvard in 1962. He then went to Michigan and got his master's and doctoral degrees. Colleagues refer to Ted as being one of the most focused individuals they had ever known. He wanted to contribute to math and make a difference. At Michigan, Kaczynski earned 5 B's and 12 A's in his 18 courses. However, in 2006, he said his, quote, memories of the University of Michigan are not pleasant. The fact that I had not only passed my courses, except one physics course, but got quite a few A's, shows how wretchedly low their standards were at Michigan. End of quote. It was also during this time that Ted was displaying signs of anger towards his parents. He claimed that his childhood was unpleasant and also says that his father only cared how well he did in school and nothing else. This behavior was disturbing to his brother David, but Ted was always a bit unusual. And his brother chalked it up As something of a phase that Ted was going through. And he'd just come around. Ted's dissertation called Boundary Functions. Won the Sumner B. Myers Prize at Michigan's best of the year. His college advisor stated that it was the best he had ever been a part of. Others have also said that they would guess maybe 10 or 15 men in the whole country could even understand or appreciate what he was doing. In 1967, Ted accepted a teaching position of assistant professor at Berkeley. He was not liked by his students. He taught the class directly from the textbook and did not even answer questions. Ted's challenges of communication with others would not make him a good teacher. Plain and simple. He just couldn't take it anymore. His failure to be accepted among his students prompted him to resign his post and move into the wilderness of Lincoln, Montana. And just like that, Ted was gone. Hey Jerry, in the 1960s there was a young man graduated from University
1: of Michigan. Did some brilliant work in mathematics, specifically bounded harmonic functions. Then he went on to Berkeley, was assistant professor, showed amazing potential. Then he moved to Montana, and he blew the competition away.
0: Yeah, so who was he?
1: Ted Kaczynski. Never heard him. Hey, Timmy. Yo, who's Ted Kaczynski? Beautiful.
0: Ted Kaczynski felt that he should live the simple life. He built a cabin and learned how to live life off the land. He had a bike that could get him around, And he enjoyed volunteering at the library. He would keep in touch with his brother, mostly through letters. Although his brother does mention often that he would visit Ted from time to time, he would plead with Ted to talk to his mom. Mom misses you, but Ted would just brush it off. Ted was convinced that his parents were against him, the whole lot of them. And when David got engaged... Ted was crushed. He shunned the union and felt betrayed. How dare his brother give in to the system. He seemed to be fitting in quite well in his new surroundings for the most part. Until a real estate company began clearing land in the area. Ted was furious. He would go on to sabotage the development of this project. And this is where I believe the fantasy became a reality for Kaczynski. He had it in his mind to take action, and he finally did. I am sure that it made him feel good to strike back and have them take notice. He felt personally offended by humanity, even in this remote location that he was living. He just couldn't get away from them, and it was time to do something about it. Here are a list of the bombs that he delivered and the damage that it produced. May 25, 1978, at Northwestern University, he injured Terry Marker, who was a university police officer. Minor cuts and burns. May 9, 1979, again, Northwestern University, John Harris was a graduate student. Minor cuts and burns. November 15, 1979, an American Airlines flight 444 from Chicago to Washington. 12 passengers were injured with smoke inhalation. June 10th, 1980, at Lake Forest, Illinois, Percy Wood, the president of United Airlines, had cuts and burns over most of his body and face. On October 8th, 1981, at the University of Utah, the bomb was diffused. So they got away with it there. That's good. May 5th, 1982, at Vanderbilt University, Janet Smith, the university secretary, had severe burns to hands and shrapnel wounds to her body. On July 2nd, 1982, at the University of California, Berkeley, his former school, a man named, and I'm going to butcher this name, I think it's Diogenes. I'm just going to leave it with his first name, because his last name, I'm not even going to think about trying to, but uh, I'm going to call him Dio. Dio was an engineering professor. The bomb that went off, he had severe burns and shrapnel wounds to the hand and face. On May 15, 1985, at the University of California, Berkeley, once again, was John Hauser, a graduate student. He lost all four fingers. That's, that sucks, man. He lost four fingers. And uh, severely... Uh, I'm sorry. severed artery and right arm. Man! Partial loss of vision in left eye. He's starting to do some damage now. June 13th, 1985. He's getting better. The Boeing Company in Auburn, Washington. They had diffused that one. November 15th, 1985 at the University of Michigan. Former school that he attended. James V. McConnell. Psychology professor. And Nicholas Suino, a research assistant. Now McConnell a temporary hearing loss, and uh, Nicholas had burns and shrapnel wounds. On December 11, 1985, in Sacramento, California, Hugh Scruton, a computer store owner, died. First, fatality. February 20, 1987, Salt Lake City, Utah, Gary Wright, computer store owner, Severe nerve damage to left arm, and this is the man, Gary Wright, that became very good friends with Ted's brother, David. On June 22, 1993, in Tiberian, California, Charles Epstein, a geneticist, had severe damage to both eardrums and partial hearing loss, and he also lost three fingers. On June 24, 1993, at Yale University, New Haven, Connecticut, David Gallantner, a computer science professor, had severe burns and shrapnel wounds and damage to right eye, loss, lost his right hand. On December 10, 1994, in North Caldwell, New Jersey, Thomas J. Musser, advertising executive, died second fatality. And his last one, on April 24, 1995, in Sacramento, California, Gilbert Brent Murray, a timber industry lobbyist died. His last two bombs resulted in deaths. And like I mentioned, he was getting better at it. If he would have kept going, there would have been more deaths. There's no doubt about it. Now, this is the part of the show where I want to talk about uh, Manhunt the Unabomber, the show that my, um, my stepbrother recommended to me. Um, the show is called Manhunt Unabomber. It was created by Andrew Cedrosky Jim Clemente, and Tony Gittleson. Now, I listened to a podcast involving Jim Clemente about his expertise in profiling and also his time in the FBI, and it's really good stuff. I recommend it. His podcast is called Real Crime Profile. Check it out. Well, he was instrumental in getting this series off the ground, Jim Clemente. He worked with the main character in the show called Jim Fitzgerald. The show is based on the capture of Ted, But of course, the entertainment business has to put their spin on it. Don't take the show literally. There are some aspects of the show that are embellished, and some that are simply not true. That is why I suggest reading up on things and doing research on your own. Jim Fitzgerald confesses that the personal stuff is pretty accurate, but the way the whole FBI team worked together was restructured for dramatic effect. And Fitz Never talked to the real Unabomber. And in the, the show, they see each other quite often and converse with one another. That didn't happen in real life. The closest he got to uh, meeting Ted Kaczynski was at his trial. Fitz was close to him, and Ted's sentence was being read to him at the time. Ted looked back and stared at Fitz for a long time. Fitz states that, it, that if looks could kill... He would be dead right now. So take what you will about the facts presented to us in this show, but you have to be impressed with the production. It was well done for sure. And it got me interested in learning more about Ted and how frustrating it was for the FBI to take him down. He was so intelligent that it took a new way of profiling to to capture him. And this is what the show is all about. They used language to understand him better. Ted was sending letters to the FBI and people studied them and found a pattern what they did was they dissected his language the way he referred to women was by calling them broads and chicks he used the phrase you can't have your cake and eat it too but he didn't write it that way he wrote you can't eat your cake and have it too and that is the proper way to actually say it very rare And when the FBI made the decision to have his manifesto released to the public, his brother had a decision to make. Do I turn in my only brother? What should I do? He ultimately decided to turn him in.
1: Our other major story tonight, a break in the Unabomber case. FBI agents are searching the Montana cabin of former mathematics professor Ted Kaczynski. Just moments ago, we received these pictures of the suspect in custody, sitting in the back of a white truck. He lives like a hermit near the town of Lincoln. He is in custody, but he has not been charged. Jay De Dapper is live in the newsroom with the very latest. Jay.
0: Well, Roz, at this point, the FBI has yet to uncover a smoking gun, any bomb parts or something like that, for example, that might conclusively link this 53-year-old recluse from Montana to the 18-year reign of terror caused by the Unabomber. He is not under arrest. Not yet. What was it that made Ted Kaczynski become the Unabomber? I believe it was a vast collection of elements. The events that happened in his life, for example, the allergic reaction in childhood. He was a baby at the time. It changed him in some way, even back then. His intelligence set him apart from his peers. He was on another level and could not identify with them. He felt alone and different. And because he was so intelligent, he had the ability to skip grades and become even more uncomfortable among his older classmates, making him withdraw even more. Through my research, I also discovered that for a short period of time, he was actually getting along with his classmates and gaining confidence, becoming a leader, but then was skipped ahead a grade once again. Then he was bullied and it fell apart on him. The fact he graduated high school at the age of 15 is extremely young and significant, He was always behind the eight ball socially. And of course, the most intriguing aspect of Ted's story is his involvement with psychological experiments at Harvard University. What did they do to this kid? Whatever innocent that kid had left in him was taken away from him at this time. Now that is just my opinion. He came to distrust the world around him, and he slipped further into mental instability. Ted was also diagnosed with schizophrenia after his arrest. He was indeed a sick man. He felt the only way he was going to be acknowledged was through terror. The shock factor. Make them take notice. What I have to say means something, and that's important. He may have even felt that by harming and killing others, he was sparing future lives in the end. Whatever the beliefs of Ted Kaczynski were, he was still someone that caused a great deal of fear and death. He eluded the authorities for decades. Now this was the first time I did research on true crime because of a show that I saw. And I have to tell you that it is very easy to see the humane side of of Ted by looking into his childhood. You actually get to see what he looked like as a child smiling with his family, being respected among his teachers, doing important work in math. This man could have been an important person in a positive way. Ted is serving eight life sentences without the possibility of parole in Florence, Colorado. It is also reported that Ted befriended Timothy McVeigh in prison. The two of them discussed life, politics, and religion. Before McVeigh was executed in 2001. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Actors Room. Highlighting Ted Kaczynski. Because of a show I watched called Manhunt the Unabomber. I hope you all had a great week. For me, it's a... What is today? It's a Friday. I'm all messed up, man. This time of year is messed up for me. Uh, We have classes starting. Our spring semester at uh, college starts on Monday. No, actually Tuesday because... Martin Luther King days on Monday, so yeah, I got a lot of uh, work to do this weekend. Although I had today off Friday, I'm gonna be working tomorrow. I'm gonna be working on Sunday. I'm gonna even have to come in on Monday if they let me come in. They always say that I'm sure there's gonna be you know somebody there at the school, and hopefully they'll let you in. I really need to go in there. We get so busy; I have work just piling up. Probably as we speak right now. There's work just piling up for me. And when I think about it, I'm like, oh, but it's got to be done. So I got to go in tomorrow and the rest of the weekend. Um, so I really can't enjoy the weekend like I, sh- I should. But what's really nice about it, too, is that when I go in, like nobody's there. So I get no distractions from anybody, like people coming in the shop or anything like that. So I'll have the, the ability to go ahead and knock out the work, which is great. Uh, so I hope you had a great weekend. And uh, this is... Uh, taking place during a storm. We have a storm going on outside right now here in Cleveland. Real nasty. They closed down the schools. It's going to get real nasty tonight. They're expecting about, I think they said, anywhere from 4 to 10 inches. I know that's a pretty broad range, but we're expected to get some snow tonight. So yours truly is going to be plowing some snow tomorrow. So I won't be able to leave my driveway probably. Oh my god. And I have to go out. I have to go pick up something like after I'm done with this podcast, I got to go pick up something at the store. It's not too far away. I got to pick up a few things. So that's what I'm going to be doing. Uh thanks again for supporting the show. It's getting a little steadier the numbers. Uh my last 3-4 days have been very good. I'm getting some people listening. Very nice. So what I decided to do was on my website, I put in a donate button. I was uh, able to do that. So if there's anybody out there listening to this show that want to support it even more uh, by donating, it could be any, it could be, I don't care, a dollar. You know, just just to support the show, to show me that, um, you know, I appreciate what you're doing. I mean, it's a lot of hard work that I put into these. I do a lot of research, and that's the most important thing about doing these podcasts, is, you know, digging deep into the lives of these people and learning about their story. So I do a lot. It's like, I almost see it like, I'm doing a book report every week. I know, but I'm doing book reports about people that are interesting. It's not like in school when they had you do a book report about, I don't know, a book that you had to read. And you had to, oh my God, did I hate doing that shit. Especially when you had to get up in front of the class. Oh my God. It's really weird too because as an actor, I'm afraid to get up and talk to people. Because I'm going to be me. And that petrifies me. I'm okay slipping into other characters. That's fine. It's the ability to go up on a stage or in front of people, a group of people, and be myself. <laughs> yeah, right. Ain't going to happen. So when I had to do that in school when I was a kid, I was petrified to do it. Oh. So anyway, um, please donate to the show if you can. Once again, it's on the website, which is the actorsroom.lipson.com. That's where you can find me. Okay, guys. Friday night, right? Put your feet up. Relax. Pour yourself a nice strong drink. It's been a long week, or you're in the middle of the weekend. You need to enjoy yourself. You need to pop in that movie, something that you really love, uh, something that makes you smile, makes you laugh. Um, maybe you're, you know, you going on a date tonight or something, or you're seeing somebody, right? Put in a movie that's a little romantic, and uh, pour yourself some wine, maybe. You know, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, why don't we just stay in tonight? We'll watch a movie. Put a movie in. Enjoy it. God bless you. Have a good one.